0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from John twelve, twelve through 26. The word of God speaks to us. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, "'Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt.' His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, "'You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him.' Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone.' But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word to us.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. Good morning, guys. It's so good to see you guys today. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chad Kintzer. I serve as uh, one of our pastors. And uh, I'm excited, as long as, uh, along with others who invited you to Holy Week, um, to, to invite you to it. This is a, this is a big week for us. And um, I'm really excited. Hey, one thing about John's announcement next Sunday for Easter that I just want to say to you, this room will be full next Sunday. It just, it's, a, it's a high attendance Sunday of the year. Please join us in just being extra hospitable to those who are guests are coming in. We want to be, a, 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 this to be a living room where anyone is welcome to come in, and especially next week to, to join us as we proclaim the resurrection of our Lord. Can we do that together? Amen. Let's do that. Hey, so some of you are like, hey, we're not reading 1 Corinthians today. What's going on? We've been there for some time. Uh, We're going to take a break from that today and next Sunday. We'll jump back into that um, the Sunday after Easter and pick up a really important section in that book on spiritual gifts and the way the Spirit edifies and builds the church. So be praying and looking forward to that. But we're going to take a break again this Sunday and next Sunday and focus around around Holy Week. As we jump into the Scriptures this morning, um, I wanna let you know that there were, there were two prayers that the Lord woke me up with this morning as I'm thinking about even approaching today um, and even this week that I just wanna bring you in on. Um, and maybe you'll pray with me as I, as I jump into the text this morning. The first is this. Um, if you've grown up around these parts, uh, likely this isn't the first time you've rehearsed something around Holy Week or Easter. This, is, this has sort of been what you do when you grow up in this part of the world, what's left of the Bible Belt. But my prayer this morning was that God would save us from religious entertainment. That God would save us from just rehearsing something um, because it's what we rehearse. That this is something about his in-breaking into the world and the redemption that he's bringing, that should spike up our attention, amen? And the second thing, the second request um, that God sort of, I think, supplied me to offer back to him to help my heart, um, and I'm offering it to you, was that he would save us from what's familiar and make it fresh again. He would save us from what's familiar and make it fresh again. So I'm going to pray those two things, and I want you just to like join me in that. And then this week, like, let's keep praying that kind of stuff and have an expectation for the Holy Spirit to meet us, right? Let's pray. Our Father, we approach you in the strong name of your Son, Jesus. What a crazy thing that you would give us the privilege to speak such a name. Much less speak it and then come in, come in behind him with all of Jesus. All of your merits are what allow us to come before the Father. We not just get to speak your name. We get to like come and share in your merits, your benefits, your righteousness, your acceptance. We come in behind you. Our prayer is heard because you have made a way for it to be heard. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would engage us on these two requests. Many more, plenty more, but these two. Would you save us from religious entertainment around Easter? That this isn't a religious spectacle. This is an invitation to be formed by the very Son of God. And would you take what's become quite possibly, so familiar to us that over a coffee table, we could just recount the events like it's yesterday's news? Would you, save, would you save us from what's become so familiar to us? And would you make it fresh to us again, fresh to the point that our lives start to bend around it and orient to it? We're beheld by it. And it would not just be something we say with our lips, it would become the joy of our very affections. Thank you that you have that kind of in-breaking news and power. We're not asking you to make it something to us that it's not and work ourselves up. We're asking for you to make this news to us what it is, the very good news of the happy God, the joyful God, come to save his people. And so we offer this prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Well, I'll never forget my first and only encounter with the former president, Barack Obama. It was during his presidency in 2012, I was in New Orleans for work and I hadn't been tapped into my newsfeed and didn't realize that the day I was set to leave the city, he was set to enter the city. And so I was on the highway headed to the airport and traffic was moving along as normal until it wasn't. (laughs) There I hit a traffic jam, wondering if I'm gonna make my flight. I was stopped on an overpass, and I was confused as to why I was stopped on the overpass. I was looking around, like, why aren't we even inching a forward just a little bit? We're just completely stopped. I looked to my right and to my left on the, on the road that was beneath me, and I couldn't see anything for what looked like a mile in either direction. The roadway was completely stopped. What's going on here? And then out of the distance, I started to see some movement that was headed in my direction, and I quickly realized this is the presidential motorcade. This is like the 50 car processional that welcomes the most powerful man in our nation into a city. It was was an impressive sight, if you've ever seen the presidential motorcade. It was an impressive sight. The the highway was completely cleared for the most powerful man in our nation. His entrance into that city that day was powerful, it was intimidating, and it was inaccessible. It was inaccessible, and so needless to say, my only encounter with President Obama was hardly an encounter at all, right? And it was, it was intended to be that way. It was intended to be that way. And that's a stark contrast from what we see happening in the way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what's known as the triumphal entry. Even the name of it should suggest it would be more powerful than it was, the triumphal entry. Maybe the only similarity between the two was the pageantry. There was pageantry around President Obama's entry into New Orleans. There was pageantry around Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but it's a pageantry that would quickly die out. It would quickly die out. Maybe you're here today, and you're aware of the stuff that goes on around the triumphal entry. You're aware of that event. You're aware of what's happening around Palm Sunday. Maybe it was a part of your religious tradition. Maybe you know about these things. Or maybe you're here and you only vaguely know about these things, but you hardly know any of their significance. You just sort of know, yeah, that's a part in the gospel accounts. That's all I could tell you. And if that describes you, I want you to know that you're actually here today in really good company. That's actually how this text describes Jesus' 12 disciples. They recognized what was happening, but they didn't know what what it meant. Look, 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 Look back in verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and they'd been done to him. And so here's what I want us to do today as we enter into Holy Week with this Palm Sunday. I want us to unpack what is is exactly going on around these events, the first day of Holy Week. What's, What's going on with them? And what do they teach us about Jesus they're not just events that happened that we should sort of put there on a map, but like, what do they teach us about Jesus? Because they certainly teach us something. And what do they mean for us then as people who claim to follow Jesus or who would want to follow Jesus? What do they mean for us? We'll do, some, we'll do three turns this morning, and I want you to notice the first. I want you to feel the drama, the drama of his entry. A couple of questions that are really important for us to ask to get to the significance are these... Why were all the people there to greet Jesus on that day? He had been around, he had been teaching, the crowds would swell and they would diminish at different times, but never was there anything like this. So why were the crowds there that day? Why were they there to greet him in a way that they hadn't greeted him before? And how did they know to expect Jesus and why were they so thrilled at his arrival? Those two questions are really important. You see, for Jesus, he knew that this particular trip to Jerusalem was gonna be his last. That this, that this road he was taking into the great city was gonna be his last. He knew the religious leaders were committed to putting an end to him. They were committed to it. He was ruffling too many feathers among the elites. He was a threat to their power. And he knew what going to Jerusalem meant on this day. He knew exactly what it meant He knew that on the other side of it, there would be false charges brought against him, that suffering awaited him. And guys, here's what I love about Jesus as we enter into Holy Week. He knew all of this and he didn't flinch. Man, I love that about him. He knew what was on the other side of it. He had been talking about it. People were confused why he kept talking about a dark day coming. I mean, look at what's happening around him. But he knew what was coming on the other side of it, and he didn't flinch. In fact, it's the reason he went. It's the reason he went. Let that hold your heart in wonder. For the majority of the Jewish crowds, though, his arrival was seen in a completely different light. You see, for the people, two things were happening all at one time. When he arrived, this was the start of one of the largest festivals of the Jewish calendar. This was the Passover. Jewish people from all over the region were pouring into Jerusalem. Scholars estimate that the city would swell to six times its usual size during this week. People were coming from everywhere. Passover was a celebration of religious nationalism for the Jewish people. Think of, think of it as Fourth of July for us. This was Jewish independence, a freedom festival. They were looking back on the great exodus event where they were set free from Egyptian uh, oppression and slavery. They were looking back on that. And in their day, they were looking toward a new exodus from Roman occupation, which they were currently living under. This is a freedom festival. Jesus is coming to town. And they were also starting this week This was new to me as I studied this week. They were also starting this week celebrating a resurrection from the dead. You might not know this, but Holy Week is actually bookended. We know the end of Holy Week, but it's actually bookended. It starts with a celebration of resurrection. You say, what do you mean? The arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem was his first public appearance since raising his friend Lazarus. From the dead. You might remember that story in the chapter earlier from where we are in John 12, in John chapter 11. Jesus was in another town teaching, and the word of his friend's death had reached him. And he wasn't able to get there to grieve with his other friends and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, until four days after his passing. When Jesus arrived, the funeral was well underway. And when Jesus arrives, you get that famous scene in John chapter 11, maybe the only verse you've memorized in the Bible. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty seven. 37, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. There's a world of wonder even in that own passage. Jesus wept. And it was at that moment when Jesus ruined the funeral. He ruined it. People hadn't been there mourning. There was crowds there gathered, friends and family, all the rest mourning the death of. Four days later, Jesus weeps, and then he steps in front of Lazarus's tomb, and he says, "Lazarus, come out." And he did. Like when my dog obeys me, and I say, "Hattie, stop," <laughs> and she stops. But with more command, with a demand, Lazarus didn't have another choice. With the command of God the Most High, he came out of his own grave. And as you can imagine, everyone is blown away. They're trying to have some sort of mental category for what just happened. <laughs> a man that had gone, they had gone there to mourn was now walking around among them in living color like he had been doing four days before that. Lazarus had become sort of like an accidental celebrity in their, in their community. Walking around in the marketplace, people were going, hey, you realize he was dead just like four days ago. You can imagine him walking in the, the marketplace and going, hey, Lazarus, what was it like being dead? How do you answer that question? Right? I, I would have loved to have known those conversations. Amazing. They're trying to have some sort of mental category. Worried about this, as you can well imagine, had traveled fast across the region. And the religious leaders, they're on edge about all of this. They had already felt threatened by Jesus. And now they're worried about him showing up in Jerusalem during this freedom festival, during Passover. And they were worried about the optics of the great crowds around him giving the impression to Rome that he was there to stir up a, a political coup. Look back in chapter 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're worried about even further oppression because of what Jesus is bringing about. So they started devising a plan to send out spies that if anyone sees Jesus show up at the Passover to immediately have him arrested, to shut down a revolution. But guys, they were also plotting to have Lazarus killed as if to say, we've got to get rid of the evidence. They didn't just want Jesus killed. They wanted the man he just resurrected to also be killed. Pick up in chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So on the one hand, the religious leaders We're experiencing religious and political unrest in trying to deal with Jesus. On the other hand, the people of Israel were experiencing great political and religious optimism as they expected to see Jesus. And so when all of this is going down, Israel had been in a place of longing and waiting for the Messiah to come. You've got to understand some of the drama, some of the heartache that's going on here. They believed that God would make good on the promise. They believed that he would send a Messiah. Israel was desperate for hope, but it had been 400 years. At this point, it had been 400 years since they had last heard a word from a prophet. That's the close of the Old Testament. It had been 400 years since they'd heard a new word from God. They're oppressed by Roman occupation. Where is God? What is he doing? It had been 600 years since they had a last true king. And so then Jesus shows up onto the scene, and all of a sudden now there's teaching. He's got authority when he teaches. He teaches like we've never heard anyone teach before. His healings, his miracles, no one can deny them. And then he commands this man who had been dead four days to come out of his tomb, and he does? Could this be the one? Is this the one we're waiting for? Is this the one we're expecting? And so this is why the crowds ran out to greet him as they heard he was coming to Jerusalem for Passover. This is the new exodus. Like, this is the moment. We've been waiting for this. We've been wondering, is it going to happen? This is the moment. They were waving palm branches. That was the equivalent of waving a flag in their day. That was a sign of Israeli nationalism. This is the one. Rome is done. They don't know what's about to hit them, But it's over, and we're going to be set free. Pick up in John 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And that's the reason why the crowd went out to meet him when they heard that he had done this sign. So why did Palm Sunday become Palm Sunday? Why did the entry become triumphal? Because it was a celebration of a resurrection. That's the drama of his entry. But I want you to know there's something around the proclamation of his own coming. This was a clear, there was a clear and present proclamation happening with his entrance to the city, and the proclamation is all caught up in what the people were singing and the donkey that he was riding as he came in. Look back at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet him. They cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Guys, if there was ever, if there was ever a a doubt of Jesus identifying as God, Throughout his ministry, if there's ever a doubt, maybe he's doing, I don't know, it's close. This moment makes it crystal clear, it's a coming out party. Absolutely. The people were welcoming him with shouts of Hosanna. The word literally means save us. It literally means save us. It comes from Psalm 118. It's a Hebrew song that held within that song is the expectation of the Messiah's coming and a visitation of God himself. Psalm 118, verse 25 says this Save us, we pray, O Lord, to God. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed, and we bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're singing to Jesus divine praise. They're singing to Jesus a worship song as God. And this is what's crazy He's in no way shutting it down, He's welcoming the praise. And this made the religious leaders furious. Who does he think he is? Isn't this the rabbi from the backwoods town of Nazareth? He's receiving now praise as God. And so in verse 19, it says the Pharisees, they said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing, meaning this is getting us nowhere. All of their anxiety, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. In fact, in Luke's account of this very event, the Pharisees actually speak to Jesus, and they try to get him to shut the crowds up. Hey, you hear what they're singing to you? You need to tell them to stop. But here's how Jesus responds in Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And notice this response. (laughs) He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. (laughs) Hey, if they stop singing, creation itself will pick up where they left off. They're recognizing the creator has come. He has entered into the story. What a moment. If they don't, then creation itself will pick up the next lyric. And if the shouts and the praise weren't sign enough of who he is and what he's saying about himself, he then rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey colt. Now, I know that that doesn't register to us. That feels like, yeah, why would, why would he do that? That sounds like there's some, like, size pro- He's like an adult man on a baby donkey. Like, that sounds like an awkward size dynamic. I thought about showing some pictures, but then I thought it would be too distracting. <laughs> that doesn't register to us the same way it would have registered to the Jewish people in his day hey, they would have known their Old Testament. They would have known their Old Testament. They knew the cues they were looking for at the arrival of the Messiah. And Jesus knew them too. And so when he rides in with the donkey colt, he's doing this in direct fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine. John quotes it in this passage, but let's read it from the prophet's mouth himself. In Zechariah 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, the people of Jerusalem, the daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. He's coming righteous, and having salvation is he. But he's humble. And he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was clearly proclaiming that day, I am your king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. King Solomon, the son of David, you might remember he entered into Jerusalem in his own kingship riding on a donkey. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He's the greater son of David. He's the one who fulfills the promise given to David that one from his line would sit on the throne of God's people forever. But notice... By coming in on a donkey, he's, he's saying loud and clear, I am your king, but I'm not coming with force. What a crazy thing. I'm not coming with force. You might expect a chariot or a war horse. <laughs> you might expect a sword in his hand. And all of that actually does happen. Just not on this day. That, that, that comes later. Revelation 19, if you're interested. But he doesn't come that way on this day. He comes humbly. Listen, (laughs) the living God in the incarnate Son comes on a borrowed donkey with the coats of peasants for a saddle. He comes humbly. While that moment was certainly filled with excitement and optimism, it wasn't an imposing moment. It was a sign of peace. And it's a sign of peace that points to the kind of salvation that he's bringing. He's not coming to stir up a political coup. He's coming to make a way for peace with God. He's the true king entering into occupied territory. This proclamation that he's coming in, it demands a takeover, doesn't it? But the irony of this is that he's gonna be the one taken over. The crowd doesn't see it yet. Someone is surely going to be slain because of this man's arrival. But it's gonna be him. But it's gonna be him. And one more thing here before getting to the final move today that connects the dots from just a moment then to you and me here? Like, what does this have to do with us in our modern moment? The very next verse of that Zechariah prophecy tells us that this is a moment that it doesn't matter for then. It matters for today. Look at verse 10 of that Zechariah prophecy. And he shall speak peace to the nations And his rule will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This means that everything that is coming in Jesus is way bigger than Israel. This is the king for the nations. Everything that was happening there on that day, the reason it reaches to us in our moment, the shouts of Hosanna, the arrival on the colt, was a proclamation to the nations that your king has come for you. And he's bringing redemption with him. It was a proclamation that was way bigger than their city. And here's the final turn today the drama, the proclamation, the misunderstanding of his entry. The misunderstanding of his entry. Pick up in verse 20 with me. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some of the Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we we wish to see Jesus. Already the nations are coming in. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Notice this line. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can half imagine that with what they were expecting in an overtaking, an overthrow of Rome, you can half imagine that when he said this, the people were like, you bet it has. You bet your hour has come. You bet you, this is the time. Their hearts jumped with anticipation. You just tell us what you need us to do. We're, we're rallied. We're here. The overthrow is now. We'll go get our weapons. You just tell us. We're ready to do this you got to understand, guys, again, they were living under oppressive foreign occupation. Government soldiers from Rome were walking the streets and demanding tax from them in order to fund the government that was oppressing them. When he says this, they're thinking, this is the moment when we overthrow Rome. This is the Messiah who's come to bring Israel freedom and establish us as the people of God. What greater moment to do this than at Passover week? We're already celebrating our freedom. Let's do it again. But notice what Jesus says next in verse 24. Here's the tension of this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will actually keep it that way for all eternity. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How quickly, guys, how quickly did the emotion of the crowd shift? They were thinking coronation. He was thinking crucifixion. They were thinking a conquest a rule through conquest. He was thinking a rule through death. You see, for the Jews, a crucified Messiah was an impossible thought. He can't be crucified because the Messiah is supposed to live forever. And he can't be the Messiah if he's crucified because Jewish law says, cursed is anyone who dies hanging on a tree. But Jesus is saying This really is the new exodus. Everything that you're wanting is here. I'm going to set you free, but listen, I've come to deal with your enemies, but not the enemies that you think you have. I really have come to establish a kingdom, but it's not a political kingdom. That's why the bomb drops. They're thinking politically, he's thinking kingdom of God at the level of their hearts. His entry into Jerusalem was absolutely a confrontation, but it's a confrontation with enemies that were far more terrifying and far more oppressive than Rome. It was a confrontation with enemies that have actually made slaves of all of us, Satan, sin, and death. Enemies that hold us in fear, enemies that prick our insecurities, enemies that that foster accusations against our anxieties, the enemies of Satan, sin, and death that they didn't want to talk about, and neither do you and I. He was bringing a confrontation not just with those enemies, but he was also bringing a confrontation with the power structures of human pride that address every person at the core of their heart, the part of you that says, I got this. Jesus was coming to make a confrontation with that. The part of you that says, I can prove myself. He was coming to make a confrontation with that. And so the reason if you've ever wondered why did the how did the crowds move from hosanna on sunday to crucify on friday, let me try to fill in the gaps. It's because Jesus didn't come to save them in the way they wanted him to. <laughs> That's why they shifted on him. He came with a confrontation that they didn't want to deal with. They wanted political, military and economic freedom not so much freedom from sin. And doesn't that sound a lot like us? They, wanted, they didn't want to look at their sin, and they surely didn't want their pride threatened, and neither do we. And so as the result, they judged Jesus when he didn't do for them what they wanted him to. And we do the same thing. Isn't it easier just to deconstruct and blame God and take an exit ramp of your own making than it is to deal with deeper issues of misplaced faith and idolatry? The way Israel acted then reads our modern male, it reads us. You see, Jesus didn't come to rule by force, He came to rule with the power of humility. This is what's so breathtaking about what he's doing. Guys, in humility, our God, our king, came to bear the curse of our sin, by the way, that was against him. He came to bear our wrongdoing against him in our place. He came to be a curse for us. And that's the reason he came into the city. So they're wanting political freedom. So what if I set you free politically? Your biggest enemies are still out there undealt with. Your political problems aren't your biggest problems. Hey, I want to turn and ask you a couple of questions that have been gnawing at me this week. What happens for you when God doesn't do for you what you want him to? What happens? Hey, and what if, what if the thing that God really wants to do for you is something deeper that can only be worked by going with him to the place of suffering. And what if the thing that you're working, picture the thing that you're working so hard in your life to make go away. What is that thing for you? The thing that you're working so hard, you're working overtime to make it go away. Maybe it's something in your singleness, something in your marriage, Whatever, whatever part of your life that you're, you're just, if I could just make this thing go away, hey, what if it's not going away because God has ordained to place it there in order to do something deeper in your life that would address you at the core of who you are because that thing needles you and pokes you and prods you and surfaces all sorts of dark things in you and he's saying, and that's the stuff I really wanna deal with. And so I'm not taking the thing away like you wished I would. The question becomes, will you still trust Jesus in the hour of darkness, trusting that he also knows the way out the other side? Will you trust Jesus in the hour of darkness, trusting that he also knows the way out the other side? Or, or, here's the other option you have, Will you silence him and turn from him and believe the lie that just because he's not doing for you what you want him to do for you, that means he doesn't care? Israel took the second option. Israel took the second option. What they intended, here's what's crazy, what they intended by come Friday, what they intended to be a judgment on Jesus at the cross was actually a judgment on human pride and wisdom, as though somehow we know better than God. And this is exactly what the Roman soldier was the first one to acknowledge. With a hammer still in his hand, with warm blood all over his arms, innocent blood, he looks and he says, surely, surely this is the son of God. What have I done? And it was in that moment that he knew it wasn't so much a judgment being carried out on Jesus as it was a judgment being carried out on us that exposed his pride along with ours. When God didn't do for them what they wanted him to do, they just snuffed him out. And so my non-encounter encounter with President Obama wasn't a disappointment to me at the end of the day. I just was glad to get the traffic moving again. And it wasn't a disappointment to me because I wasn't expecting that encounter. I wasn't even looking to him for deliverance. I wasn't. But the reason that these people were so conflicted with Jesus is because they were expecting the Messiah. They were looking for it. And then they encountered him. And they were looking to him for deliverance. And he's actually bringing deliverance. But it's not the deliverance they wanted. It was of a different kind. And it wasn't of a kind they valued. You see, they wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want a cross. They wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want a cross. And they didn't want to deal with sin. And hold this, this Holy Week. But he's not a Messiah if there is no cross. What makes him a Messiah is the cross and a confrontation with our sin. His entry into Jerusalem started bright. Songs, shouts, the cult of a donkey. But it meant following the Father into the dark. It started bright, but it meant following his father into the dark. And guys, listen to this. Here's the final today. Jesus proves to us that the father can be trusted in sorrow. He can be trusted in confusion and that he knows the way out the other side. He knows the way out the other side. So Holy Week is bookended. Holy Week is framed up. I love this. I love that we get a frame for what we're entering into. We already know the spoiler alert, but if you can just sort of say there's a preview and then there is the main event, Holy Week is bookended with a celebration of resurrection. Lazarus is the preview, Jesus is the main event. What Jesus did for Lazarus, he's about to do for the rest of us. But in between all that, it gets dark. In between all that, it gets really dark. And so the question and the invitation of Palm Sunday, what I want to leave you with as we're entering into Holy Week, the question and the invitation that this passage turns to ask us. Your king has come, and he's bringing redemption with him. But verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. The first question is this, will you lose your life to Jesus? That's the invitation of Holy Week. It's easy to sing the songs, will you follow him into the dark? Will you lose your life to Jesus? The second question is this, verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, There, my servant will be also. Will you follow Jesus to the cross as he faces your sin? Will you follow him when he confronts you at the place where you're not sure you want to be confronted, but he's the one dealing with it? He's the one dealing with it. Will you let him be the savior that he is and not a savior of your own making? Will you follow him to the cross? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you please provoke in us? Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to rise to the surface of our hearts and our minds. New desire to follow Jesus, but I'm also asking for you to provoke and bring to mind all the places where we tend to flinch. And in those places, would you help us to bring those out of our hearts? Would you help us to bring them out of our minds into words and say, Jesus, would you help me to follow you even if it means going to the dark? And would you help me to trust, Lord Jesus, that you know the way out the other side? Jesus, we want to honor you in our meditation of what you've done. We want to honor you in all the ways that we behold what you've done, not making you into a cute little springtime savior, but that you would be who you are, the very son of God come to take the sins of the world. Help us to behold you this week. Jesus' name, amen.